they will say that I have shed innocent blood. What's blood for, if not for shedding? I'm the number one fan. We all go a little mad sometimes. God, it knows I'm here. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Once again, thank you for tuning in to Slasher Sports Cinema. He is the author and narrator of The Warning Woods, a horror podcast. Welcome to the show, Miles Tritle. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Hey, thank you very much for taking your time out of the day. Did I say that last name right, Tritle? Yep, that's it. Nailed it. I love nailing it the first time. Yeah, well, I want to thank you very much for taking your time to come and hang out with me a little while. And first of all, let me talk about this ridiculous flick that uh, released in 88. But first, I mean, listen, I listened to your Halloween special. It was called The Exorcism of Ridgeville. That's right. Yeah, I like that a lot. You got a good voice for narration. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, one of the things I'll get compliments on and you know that's just not anything that i thought uh you know i'm primarily a writer so it's really just something i'm fortunate to have on the side i guess is the voice to then narrate the stories yeah, just a bonus i guess yeah. to go along with it all that, that's good though i mean I, I i've been told i have a face for radio so that's you know, <laughs> always good to to hear from people because it sounds genuine you know it sounds like a, a a real compliment but where do your ideas come from man uh, anywhere, you know, I, I have, you know, everybody's got their phone in their pocket. And so anytime I'm walking around and something pops in, I might see, well, here's an example in my neighborhood recently, somebody left a stroller next to a trailhead that goes down into the woods and it's been there for days. It's still there. I went around looking, you know, there's yeah. Yeah. A baby stroller and there's nothing in it. Mm. It's empty. It's just sitting there in the woods. And, uh, I, so, you know, you hope things the, like that. you kind of hope the baby learned to walk or something. That's I guess, I guess <laughs> because what happened there. There's a story there. And, uh, you know, I might not know what the true story is, but I'll make one up eventually and that'll make its way into the podcast. So, you know, I'll just, I'll see things throughout the day or I'll be sitting watching TV and something will just come into my head. And, uh, you always got to vet those ideas and make sure they didn't come from a movie you watched three months ago or something like that. But sure. Yeah. Sure. I'll write them all down I, I in my phone. I guess there's always going to be that fear. Uh, you know, where did I get this idea? Did I see it uh, on an episode of American Horror Story or something? And yeah, that, that's that's a very good point. And almost almost kind of dissuades me from from writing more because like, hey, what, what if I get about halfway into this and somebody hits me up? You know, they're, they're you know reading it for me on the side. They're saying, Hey, did you take this from <laughs> misery back in 91? <laughs> I guess I did. Yeah. That happened to me just recently. I, I went and saw smile and a week later I started writing a story and without even thinking about it, I was writing the plot of smile into one of my own stories and realized as I was writing it, like, oh, I got to back this up. This is too, too relatable to the, the recent movie. Well, well, don't worry about that because I mean, even Smile took a little something from It Follows, did it not? Sure. Oh yeah, yeah. 
I think that was one of the bigger complaints that I heard before I even saw the film. That, oh yeah. Well, uh, oh, they just you know ripped off It Follows. And said, well, they they took elements, which yeah. there's not an original thought out there. No, no, people have been doing this for way too long. Yeah, I mean, all ideas are exhausted now. You you kind of have to just. Well, we didn't have a clown in it last time, so let's add a clown and and it follows, and maybe we've got something. Yeah, you right. just kind of have to add different variables and and hope the story kind of shakes out. Yeah, but, I, but, I like to explore the the human elements, you know. So I might have an idea that might not be the most original, but I'll ask myself, you know, what would happen if if uh, a type A person rather than a type B person was in this same scenario? How would they react? And that can sometimes mix it up and give you some different results too. Very good, very good. So the uh, the exorcism of Ridgeville did uh, did that end because I actually got to uh, chapter four. Yeah, so part five came out on Halloween, um, so that's wrapped and that up. That was the you finale. The there, that's it. Yep, yep. Part five ends there. Um, so yeah, that's that's something I'll do once a year. Well, I've done it twice now, so hopefully I continue to do it once a year um, on Halloween. I'll have a big five part episode it's kind of a a serial show that'll span five days leading up to halloween and end on october 31st each year Um, and then the rest of the year i'm putting out one story a week on on fridays but you know i kind of like that i cut my teeth on the podcast well it was called serial uh the one about you know it was a true crime podcast about a kid over in uh, maryland who uh, may may or may not have murdered his girlfriend and went to jail for a very long time uh, was actually just recently released from prison um, acquitted of the crime after i don't even know how many years it's been it was in the early 2000s that he went so it was like in the neighborhood of 20 years that he's been in prison and they suddenly say that he didn't do it but that podcast was episodic and well they're all episodic but i mean it was a a saga so to speak, and not like a new subject every week. And I, even though that's what, you know, I do here, um, I, I enjoy more something that is uh, a saga kind of like you did with, actually you do it with more than just your Halloween special. They're usually, uh, in separate parts. Yeah. Uh, the Halloween special is, is in five parts. Yeah. The other stories will, they'll usually be their own, their own thing. Um, unless I'm promoting a book, cause I also have a couple novels, so I'll, I'll release a, a prologue or a chapter or something like that. Um, I just recently put out the audio book for my, my most recent novel, Mr. Secrets. Um, so that's where, you know, the novels is kind of where I'll get more into the, the chapters and releasing little bits at a time. Um, but the Halloween special is usually where I have a, a longer story. And you narrated all of this, the, the audio book yep. as well. Yep, yeah, I did the audiobook. Good. Yeah, I self good I self publish those, um, including the audiobook. So I do all that myself, start to finish, which is exhausting. I'm oh yeah, I'm sure it is. Uh, of course it is. But good on you for that. I mean, you uh, well, like I said, you definitely have a voice for uh, narration. It's uh, a pleasant voice. It's not overpowering. Um, anytime I listen to an audiobook, and it's pretty often, I do look for uh, what's different about this voice. You know, is it something I can listen to for an extended amount of time? And I was just talking to uh, Chris D'Italia. He's um, he's a, a narration guy. He's a voiceover actor, actually, in uh, oh, cool. New Jersey. And 
we were having the conversation like, man, why do they keep casting these non voice actors in voice acting roles? Like we, I believe the, the subject came up of uh, the super Mario brothers, uh, the mm-hmm. new flick. You've got Chris Pratt in the, in the role of Mario cast a little bit, a little bit, but you got Jack black as Bowser and I can live with that. I like Jack. Absolutely. Black. Big yeah. fan of his. But once you get past the the starring roles with Mario and Bowser, you, it doesn't really matter who you cast. Like nobody's showing up to Super Mario Bros. at the theater to hear Anya Taylor Joy. Right. Nobody. She doesn't right. even have enough of a distinct voice for me to say, you know what I'm going to see? I'm going to see uh, Princess Peach because Anya Taylor Joy's in this film, and she was great in. Um, well, what was that flick that she did uh, about the chess player? Uh, oh, the Queen's, Queen's Gambit. The Queen, Queen's Gambit. Fantastic yeah. film. But there's nothing about her that says I'm going to go watch because of a voice role. Right. Right. So you would think that you would say, hey, we've got this union of of actors. Let's take care of our voice actors who are up and coming and get those guys in, into the film. It's going to be a huge film because. First of all, if you don't already want to go see Super Mario Bros. and get your head checked, but Chris Pratt's a big a big name, whether you like him or not. Uh, Jack Black's fantastic, universally loved, I think. Um, but damn it, well, why you know, why not take care of your voice actors? I don't know, but um, I, I guess I want to know what is your writing process like? Is, is it just like I had an idea, I need to put this down before it's out of mind? Or is it more like a scheduled amount of time where you go into your creative space or is it where maybe somewhere in between? Uh, it's kind of all of that. So I'll, you know, like I said, I got my phone on me. So anytime I have the idea, I make sure I capture that and I, I can hold on to that for when um, I always write early, early in the morning, I'll get up before I've got uh, a kid. So before she gets up, I'll wake up and, and start writing. I always sit down um, usually with the idea ready to go and I'll just start writing for an hour or two, whatever I get from there. Um, then I'll, I'll go back over it. You know, it usually takes me two or three days to finish a whole story, then go back over it, polish it up, edit it, catch all the times that I put plot holes and things or forgot that, you know, I, I wrote that a door was locked and then later somebody gets in through it, you know, things like that that you just don't catch in the, in the moment. So I'll clean it up that way. And then, uh, I'll usually, as I'm recording the podcast, as I'm narrating it, I'm doing little tiny tweaks and changes to some of the wording and stuff like that, just to really polish it up. Um, so a whole episode will, you know, the, the writing alone will usually take four days, probably eight hours total. Um, and from, from idea to finished product, it really is just taking the, whatever idea came into my head and fleshing that out, building the characters in there. Um, until I've got something that's worth putting out. I, I can dig that. Is is writing kind of a cathartic thing to you, or is it just something that uh, that you do for fun? Um, because I was yeah. talking to a, an author recently, and he talked about uh, writing. Uh, actually, he's a horror writer as well, but writing as a catharsis. And when I think about that, and I, if I'm writing based on mood, well, once I get all that frustration out, um, like, what am I going to do? How am I going to continue to write with the same quality? You know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. You know, it's, it depends on how you approach the story, I think, because sometimes I will have that, that theme kind of 
works its way into the story where I'm in a certain mood and that just kind of builds itself in. Then other days I wake up and maybe I'm just tired. That's when I'll I'll focus on the characters and I'll try to put myself in their headspace to try to wrap my head around their mood, um, what they've got going on. If if my own mind isn't supplying those finer details of emotion and thought, I try to imagine what somebody uh, different from me, somebody who's got a different life experience in a different setting, how they would react. And that's kind of how I work through that. Um and, you know, I do have fun with it. It's not it's not something I approach like a chore. Uh, it kind of came about because uh, you see the guitars behind me. I'm a, I'm a music guy. And that's that's kind of how I spent all my time growing up was playing guitar. And then I had a kid and you can't really crank up an amp every day like I could when I was a teenager and, and do that. So I found writing as a quiet way to get that creative energy out. And then that's just built into what it is now. Um, so I approach it the same way I would a hobby of just it's a way for me to be expressive and have a creative outlet um and i'm just fortunate that i have a an outlet like podcasting where i can actually share it with people and generate an audience from it because i didn't have a hope of that in music oh well listen it's a good thing you're doing it in 2022 and not in 1992 because you'd be exactly using a, a typewriter and the baby would never sleep Right. Yeah. You'd probably rather have the guitar plugged in. Yeah. But how do you balance, uh, you know, your your writing, your hobbies with a job and a and a kid? I mean, how do you balance fatherhood and and all this that you've got going on? Uh so you know, I mentioned getting up early. I wake up same time every day. It's usually between five and five thirty, depending on if I if I beat my alarm. Um, and then I'll, I'll get straight into work. I'll grab a cup of coffee and just sit down to start writing. Uh, or if I've got a finished story, that's when I'll record too, is during that same block of time. Usually a little bit after that, my kid will wake up and uh, I'll kind of get into the, the parent mode. I'm fortunate that uh, my job lets me work from home most days. I'm, I'm here almost all the time. So there's no commute. Some days I don't even really have to get dressed. I can kind of switch right from one role into the next uh, without a break. I can be around and be a parent while I'm also doing my day job. And uh, once that's over, I'm already home. So I just transition right into, you know, being a, being a husband and a father. Um, if I'm lucky and, and my kid goes down early, I might get another hour or so of work at the end of the day. But in order to wake up early, I'm also going to bed fairly early. Um, and, you know, <laughs> in order to have fun, I really got to rely on the weekends because, I, I book myself during the weekdays from morning until I go to bed with uh, some form of, of work. It, it's hard to call it work with podcasting, though, because I do enjoy it. Oh, no doubt. So let's jump into the actual meat and potatoes of what we're doing. I mean, I, there are more subgenres of horror now, and sometimes it gets overly complicated, but my question is like, what makes something scary to you? What makes it worthy of being written down and saying, Hey, this is my work. Yeah, that is a great question. Um, you know, I think, uh, some people might consider something scary to be like the gore or your James Wan jump scares. I think, uh, my brand of horror relies a lot more on, on suspense and atmosphere, you know, putting out a, 
a horror story that's just full of surprises, I think is going to get old pretty quickly. I think people are going to come to expect the unexpected in a, in a way that does not benefit your stories. So I'll really try to build up a story, build up a setting, um, and then try to maybe add a twist or something like that. I tend to lean more towards the paranormal because you can do things with paranormal that are harder to do with, with other subgenres of horror um, where you're not really bound to the rules of nature. You can kind of make up your own little twists and turns as you go. Sure. Um, but you know, actually I also, I really try to mix it up with my story so that my listeners never really know what to expect. So I do have things that are um, just a, a slasher story here and there. Um, maybe a serial killer I'll do. I have one, uh, coming out tomorrow. That's really different from what I normally do. Um, that's more of a psychological sort of thriller where the, the narrator, the main character thinks one thing is going on and that's not at all what's happening. It's not revealed until the end. Um, so, you know, I, I do try to mix it up to keep my audience interested, but I do really rely on suspense. I think that's that's the key to making something really scary is to uh, kind of have that lingering feeling of uncertainty. Sure, sure. And, and like we said before, it does feel like there's not an original thought out there. And, you know, having just watched Smile and, you know, before you know we could even review it, there's, you know, complaints about how it follows, it follows and uh, with just different settings, right? How do you avoid uh, those horror tropes in your writing? I don't know if I do all the time. So I want to be careful how much I you know, say that I do avoid them because there's probably somebody that's going to listen to the podcast after this and go, oh, he's just following all the same same tropes. But um, I, I try to be aware, you know, I do try to watch a good amount of horror, read a good amount of horror to see what's out there and make sure I'm not stepping on something that's already been done. Um, And that awareness helps because what it does is, is I'll catch myself building up to something that's like I mentioned that story where I realized I was copying smile. Well, that then gives me the opportunity to go back, take the same characters in the same setting and do a, a turn towards something that's different. And Sometimes that'll help me break out of that pattern that's in my head that's been put there by somebody else and their idea that I'm just following along with and try to branch into something that's my own. Um, so that's that's basically the the only way I found to avoid that is just awareness. Well, before we jump into today's topic being the John Carpenter film, They Live, tell everybody where they can find you on your social medias. Uh, if you're even active on social media, um, I'm starting to draw away from it, honestly, but put that out there. Yeah. Well, you know, I did just delete my my TikTok, but I'm still on Instagram uh, at The Warning Woods. You can find me there. Um, I, tr- I got some personal pages that are locked down just for friends and family, but that's where I post all the the podcast stuff. Mainly, I'm, I'm on Instagram. Um, so if you go there, yeah, you can find I've got a link tree in the bio where you can find the podcast on all the different platforms i'm on all the the major ones i'm on youtube that audience is starting to build um i got my my show on there about six months ago so that's starting to gain some traction um but yeah apple podcast spotify i use overcast wherever you usually listen to podcasts it's called the warning woods the warning woods so 
speaking of horror tropes that have been done and done over um, one that hasn't really been overly done, especially at the time it was released on this day, November 3rd, back in 1988. It's a John Carpenter film. They live. Had you seen this one before uh, we, uh, we met up? I had not. And uh, you know, I was surprised when it started up and I saw John Carpenter's name, I kind of smacked myself. Like, how did I miss this one? It's great when you find something like that, that you didn't see before. It was a really long time before I saw his film Vampires. Oh, yeah. Um, I had never seen that one. I, I was big. I mean, listen, Carpenter is one of my like Mount Rushmore guys. Like, mm-hmm. The Thing is probably my favorite uh, outside of Friday the 13th Part 2 uh, in, in all of the horror genre. Yeah. Uh, then you've got Big Trouble in China, Halloween, obviously Halloween. Mm-hmm. But yeah, John Carpenter uh, wrote and directed this one, uh, known for Halloween, The Thing, Escape from New York and L.A., Big Trouble in Little China. Don't even need to keep going. Um, do you have a favorite Carpenter film? I'd probably say The Thing for me as well. Halloween yes. might be a second, but The Thing is just a class. I mean, the score, everything about that one is perfect. Perfect cast, perfect mm-hmm. score perfect story uh perfect uh practical effects i love it all man love it all oh, the, yeah. the thing is just nearly the perfect horror film yeah um, my, my favorite horror film of all time is friday the 13th part two and that's where you kind of spider web into all my other horror interests you know it just depends on what you, you know you, what you got into from there sure but this one stars rowdy roddy piper um he's uh he's listed as nada in the credits but he never actually says his name in this film uh, they call him nada in the credits because that's the guy's name in the short story um but yeah listen rowdy roddy piper is a was a unique cat r.i.p rowdy roddy piper but he was a unique cat and if you didn't really follow pro wrestling back in the uh, early 90s late 80s hell even mid 80s he was uh you know, you may not have been born at that time. I I say not you yet. as in the uh, <laughs> the, uh, the 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 listening audience. But Rowdy Roddy Piper was one of those guys that was not a big guy. He looks jacked in this film. He's you know if yeah. if I'm shoveling dirt like he is, my and I look like he does, my shirt's going to be off too. He had um, a shredded six pack while he was sitting down. That that takes what, some muscle. <laughs> he did, and you know. You see him standing next to like Keith David. Uh, you see him standing next to the rest of the cast, and he looks absolutely jacked. But in the wrestling ring, he's one of the smaller guys. There are very few times where he's going to be the bigger guy in the ring. But where he really made his money was on the microphone. And he didn't have honey in his voice like you do, Miles. Okay. He does not. But <laughs> Rowdy Roddy Piper uh, could like talk the people into the stadiums and he was like one of the biggest, um, if not the biggest bad guy in wrestling at one point, he's one of the biggest, um, you put him on Mount Rushmore with the guys like Ric Flair and things like that. But Roddy Piper on the mic was golden. And, you know, he came up from some pretty humble upbringings and he even mentioned, you know, some, some scenes in this film that were difficult to film or at least difficult to watch being filmed because it kind of hit home, you know, being homeless at one point. And he's just a really special guy. And did you know anything about him coming into this film? 
I didn't know. So he he had some of the biggest matches. I mean, he headlined WrestleMania one. Okay, I think even if you're not a wrestling fan, you know what WrestleMania is. It's just oh, yeah. the, the big, the, the the big event from WWE, which was WWF at the time. But he headlined WrestleMania one in a tag match against Hulk Hogan uh, and wow. Mr. T of all people. But he'd been around for that amount of time and actually quit wrestling, quit the WWF to be in this film. Uh, no Vince kidding. McMahon, the, uh, yeah, Vince McMahon, the owner, president, whatever, of uh, WWF, didn't want him to do it. He's like, I don't do that film. We're going to find you something else. It's going to pay similar or whatever. No, he's like, no, go to hell. I'm, I'm going to do this film. And wow. he did this film with, with John Carpenter. Who, who tells you not to go do a film with John Carpenter? Yeah, that's, Who advises that's not against a smart that? move. No. no, it's John Carpenter. Your name's going to be huge. Yeah, and WWF yeah. films wanted to do their thing for so long. I don't know how they didn't latch on to this. Right. But uh, Keith David is also in this film, not David Keith. Okay, I get those guys mixed up so much. And that, that's on me. It's just like when I uh, get the uh, the cult and the cure mixed up. Oh, all the like, time. I do the same thing. I'm glad I'm not the only one. <laughs> no, you're not the only one, man. I love the cult and I can't stand the cure, but I still get the names mixed up. <laughs> the cult's great. But, you know, Carpenter actually wrote this role of uh, Frank specifically for Keith David after he did oh, such really? a good job in, in The Thing. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, I mean... I, I just love Keith David. Like anytime I see him show up in a film, I'm just automatically happy. It's automatic serotonin. Yeah, it's like a I warm just, blanket. It is a he is a warm blanket of an actor. Yeah. Miles yeah. is what he is. And you know, you think about the thing. Uh, he went right from the thing into Mister Rogers' Neighborhood. Okay, as a <laughs> handyman. How do you go from the thing to Mister Rogers' Neighborhood? As Keith David, that's the only way. That's the only way he played like a handyman or a maintenance guy or something. Um, but yeah, that, that's my favorite Keith David fact. Uh, but he was in there's something about Mary. He's the Franken beans guy um, pulls the zipper up and it just gruesome scene. I, I would rather watch the thing a hundred times over than see that scene even one more time. <laughs> that's fair. But, you know, he's sitting on about 350 acting credits to this day. Wow. So to try and pinpoint a handful would just be a, a waste of breath. Complete wow. waste of breath. I had no idea he had that many. You know, it, it, they kind of sneak up on you. You don't realize how how often you see people in films until you look at somebody's resume like Danny Trejo. At one mm -hmm. point, he'd done more films in one year than anybody. It was like 100 films in one yeah. year. And whether they were like bigger roles or just small cameos, they're going to get the bag. Sure. They are going to get the bag. Yeah. And you, you have to, you, know, you have to really, you know, respect that hustle. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You'll see Danny Trejo standing in the background and you kind of have to, what, is that, is that actually him there? <laughs> With a red solo cup, no lines, <laughs> but, but he's right. going to get paid for yep. this role. So the tagline for They Live is, in every neighborhood, there's one house that adults whisper about. No, no, that's that's not right. It's, uh, I, I copied like three taglines here. <laughs> no, the, the, that was from Halloween. I, the, the one I'm thinking about is, I'm here to 
Oh boy, I know this. Yeah, yeah. chew bubble gum just, and kick ass. And he's all out of what? All, all out, out of bubble, bubble gum. gum. Oh yeah, he had that some nice line, ones in there. Listen, this is why I brought up the fact that Roddy Piper was so good on the mic in wrestling. Yeah, because he ad libbed a lot of these lines. He had a lot of them written down. I don't want to say ad libbed. He had them written down for wrestling promos and he shared them with Carpenter and Carpenter's like, yeah, let's use that. one." So that is a Piper written line. That is amazing. Yeah. I love it. Um, But yeah, we're we're talking about they live. Okay. And you talk about tropes. Uh, Roddy Piper, he's wandering into town. He's that wandering loner on a lonely road. He's down on his luck. Somehow eating his, enough protein to maintain however his big his biceps were. Absolutely jacked physique. <laughs> Hair is perfectly feathered. Oh, yeah. He, he is not a vagrant whatsoever, but he's a little standoffish to everybody he meets, as you have to be when you're a, a wandering loner. And he's a people watcher. Okay, you don't have to be a loner to do that, because that's mm-hmm. like one of the more fun things to do in the world. Oh, yeah. Sit, sit on a park bench and wonder how many cheerleaders that guy's got in his basement (laughs) but you know he's more observant than the average guy you know he he sees through what others are eating up right just off a jump street what's your initial take on the roddy piper character nada you know i loved uh how the the score kind of added extra you know meat to his character for lack of a better term it it gave him that outlaw vibe that was already there, but that extra little, that twangy kind of outlaw score, it added so much. And, and I, you know, whenever I see a character like that, I get excited, you know, it, it all of a sudden it seems fun to wander into a city like that and you don't know where you're going or what you're going to do. And, uh, I think that's just, yeah, it's a little bit of a trope, but it's something that I think everybody wants a little bit of in their life, you know, just a little no bit of doubt. mystery. Yeah, yeah, a, a little something that we don't know about this guy. There's more than meets the eye. Why do we know that? Because he's got entrance music. Oh, yeah. Outlaw and entrance music. Outlaw entrance music. And I, when I think about that loner coming into town, I always think about the uh, the, the series, uh, The Incredible Hulk, with mm. Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno. And like it, it's a saddened song uh, when he's got his little... A uh, knapsack on his shoulder, you know, thumbing a ride. But no, this this guy gets the the John Wayne welcome. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, he's got attitude. Oh, he's got a huge attitude. But you know, <laughs> we meet. Uh, I guess we we meet the foreman for his. You know, knowing that what we know about the film, well, just knowing what we know about the film. Yeah, Carpenter's putting his commentary on everything. Mm-hmm. Okay, his, his social commentary. And the first thing he points out is apparently his thought on unions. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because Piper strolls up to the, you know, the potential job site where he meets the foreman here and he asks for a job. Foreman tells him, well, it's a union job. Piper looks around and sees like the guy slacking, huddled up laughing. Like he doesn't beat this one into the ground, but like he gets his jab in, right? It's there. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's clear. <laughs> yeah he doesn't he doesn't like unions um <laughs> but we meet keith david very soon after that he 
he happens to he's sweating he's working on i don't know if he's got a jack camera i can't remember what he's got mm-hmm. but he looks over at piper who's seemingly shoveling dirt for no reason <laughs> it doesn't look like there's any type of task he's on no. he's just no. digging that shovel into the dirt for no good reason glistening but, under the sun yeah just he is glistening under yep. the sun he was as brown as a biscuit <laughs> mild he was as brown as but that comes from wrestling oh yeah no it comes from pro wrestling he was fresh out of wrestlemania 3 uh when, when this film happened and like they all go to the tanning bed if oh yeah you jack look, and tan look that's under his saying. arms oh yeah man you, you look under his arms there's gonna be a big white spot where his arm <laughs> where the tanning bed was but um but yeah like, like i said we we meet uh keith david and i can't help but be just ecstatic that he's on screen um that i guess this movie just subconsciously makes me happy because so many different things in my worlds kind of came together. I was mm-hmm. a big wrestling fan as a kid. I love the thing already. And there's Dave, Keith. Keith almost did it. Almost did it. <laughs> I almost said David Keith. David Keith is another actor, very talented actor, not a horror actor at all. But where would you remember uh, David Keith? Major League Two. Mm, he was. So it's part two of Major League, the baseball film, right? Okay. And uh, he, he's a he's a player on uh, the Indians, the Cleveland Indians, and he's an asshole to everybody. Gotcha. So he's the he's the guy who nobody wants him on the team, and he ends up getting traded uh, to uh, another contender. And he's just like the, the worst guy. Jack Parkman is his name. All right. But yeah, Keith David just subconsciously makes me happy here so he he kind of hooks up with uh with nada and he says hey if you need a place to stay there's a community just down the way that's where i'm going and it looks like there's some people that are down on their luck you know it's just a community for uh you know people taking care of each other but you know that they don't have you know anything except each other right but there are random sofas (laughs) out in the the open So it must never rain there. First, guess of all. not. That's the first thing I think about in Tennessee. Oh yeah, yeah. Here in Tennessee, if you don't like the weather, just you know, wait two days, and it's going to be different, right? And it's the same and, here but, in Iowa. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've always heard that about Iowa. Mm-hmm. And you, you've got the four. You've got four seasons. A lot of places oh. don't have four seasons. We have four seasons that you can have all four of within one season. Some years. Oh, that It'll, is just bananas. It just turns right bananas. on a dime. Yeah. And it feels like it turns, uh, it alternates summer, fall, winter, uh, you know, right around the September, October timeframe. And that's right now. Yeah. But these people are sitting outside on like apparent sofas that are just out in the elements and they've got a TV. I don't know where the hell they're running the, the current to, but they've got like a, a floor model TV that they're all watching. And there's like a hacker almost like that takes over the, uh, the TV station. And yeah. he, he's talking about the annihilation of consciousness, uh, racial relations, civil rights are down the drain. And he says something that they are safe as long as they are not discovered. You know, something that's going to be very important later on in the film. Yep. But we're, you know, we're being bred for slavery and then the, the shutoff, you know, to shut off the signal at the source. Like, what's he mean by that? Right. But th- these are all things that are going to foreshadow the story. Right. Right. And there's just like a really mysterious scene that kind of just 
you know, dropped in with no foreshadowing at all. Um, everybody's having a great time. They're eating dinner, uh, talking about baseball. Um, but then the scene happens out of nowhere. What would you say that that sounds a lot like the conspiracy theorists of today, though? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And even the reaction to him cutting in on the broadcast, everyone, you know, nobody stopped him. But what is he talking about? They're like, ah, this idiot. He's interrupting our broadcast. You know, they, they didn't. He listened to him at all. He just sounded like a nut job. And, and we do that. Mm-hmm. We, we we absolutely do that. We ignore all conspiracy theorists and just they're all nut jobs. Yeah. Until six months later when their conspiracies turn out to be true. <laughs> yeah. Well, some some of them anyway. But it, <laughs> it's not like yeah, enough of them. It only takes, you know, a handful. Mm-hmm. But it, it's not like everybody at the community settlement is like ignoring everything because they are sitting around talking about it. But it's like it's almost like there's one guy in the circle who nobody takes seriously. And he he's not even serious about it himself that much, but like Miles, go ahead and call him out. Who's your, uh, you know, who's your biggest conspiracy theory friend? We all have one. Oh boy, you know it might be me in my group of friends. <laughs> I think I'm, I think I'm that guy. You know, I like if to you, entertain if, any if idea. If you don't have one, you're the guy, right? I think so. I think because I'm usually the guy that starts saying something and I got all my friends sending me links and articles and stuff. I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> I'll back down. Wait, have, have, have I gone overboard with this? <laughs> what, what, what's your favorite conspiracy theory? My favorite? Well, should we stick to the ones that haven't been proven true yet? This is a safe space. Okay. Listen, if, if, if you remember one that turned out to be true, then sure. Hmm. Well, you know, you got your classic MK Ultra type stuff. My favorite ongoing conspiracy. Oh man, there's gotta be one. You know, there's all the talk about the UFO stuff. There's always a fun conspiracy around that. Oh, you know, yeah. why why is the Pentagon talking about this now? What what are they what do they want us to know and what do they not still want us to know? You know, actually, you know, if, if we were to pick one that I absolutely wanted uncovered right now, it's JFK though. I think <sighs> see that's, I mean, that's Re- released the document though. Yeah. 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 And, but the thing is like, there's a 0% chance that it's not a conspiracy. I agree. Conspired outside of this lone gunman, right? Yeah. <laughs> there's absolutely, oh, absolutely zero chance. Yeah. And there's also zero chance that the government is being 100% up and up with us. Well, I mean, not te- what, listen, what's in those I've documents that they keep pushing back? Right. Right. So listen, you've got a kid. Mm-hmm. I've got two kids. Like I've been in charge of their lives and they are the most important people to me in the world. I 1000% have lied to them. (laughs) You take the leaders of a nation, put them over millions and millions and millions of people. And you're going to tell me that everything they've told us has been just copacetic. Well, I mean, they know they're not only talking to the top 1% of intelligence. You know, it's got to be messaging that's for everybody. And, and you know when you're doing the that, the could the could the kid example is perfect. You know you you got to talk down right, to the though, kids and protect them. The worst thing to happen to a conspiracy theorist, though, is to find out one of their conspiracies was true, mm-hmm. right? It, and then everything just becomes a conspiracy. Oh you know, yeah, you t- you take like that nut job Alex Jones. 
Mm-hmm. Well, when you think of conspiracy theorists, you think of this guy, right? Yeah, yeah. The problem was he has found so many things that turned out to be correct. Yeah, so like I said, many. enough. You know, it, it just takes a few, and then and, and, then and you're that's doubting the thing, everything. though. It's it's not even a few. It's like the majority, the vast majority that comes from him is correct mm-hmm. in some way or another. He said that, uh, like th- there was pollution in the water that was turning the frogs gay, and people turn. It's a classic one, right? And like people use that as ammunition until they well, they used it as ammunition either until they found out that that is partially true. It it wasn't Mm -hmm. turning the frogs gay. It was basically turning them into uh, like um, it either changed their gender or gave them both. It was like hermaphroditic kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because I know the word hermaphrodite, (laughs) but I didn't know the state of being. (laughs) I I I hope I said it right. Well, listen, if you didn't, you're in some shit now, but (laughs) But listen, that that is a true conspiracy that people laughed at him about. Yeah, and it or Bohemian Grove true. is the other big one. Bohemian you Grove know, is the video one that did it. him in. This is the yeah. one that did him in, Miles. Yeah, it, it, because like he's out in the woods, he's infiltrated this group, and he's like, listen, we we've got a we've got it on good authority that these guys are talking to the top CEO members, and uh, listen, you go out in the woods, you find a big freaking owl. And then a burning effigy. He they yeah. thought that they were burning a real body. Yeah, yeah. And the, it looks like it in the video. Have you seen the video? It it totally yeah. could be that. Yeah. Yeah, it, it could totally look like a dead body. But then, you know, you, you have the, the things where he really screwed up on. And yep. you know, the the, the Sandy He's Hook facing thing. the music for that now. Yeah. Facing the music for it right now. But you know, back when Sandy Hook was fresh and nobody cared what you put on YouTube. Mm-hmm. There were multiple videos from people that were not like that had nothing to do with Alex Jones sure. who were using like plenty of false flag uh, videos to uh, to illustrate the very same point. Mm-hmm. And there's the video of the dad who's like laughing before he realizes he has to be on camera. And then he gets the the stoic face and starts saying, I miss my child or whatever it was he was saying. Right. Like th- Alex Jones has been saying for a long time that he was wrong, like a very long time. And then, mm-hmm. but he was very wrong. Yeah. Like it, was, yeah. it was like one of the worst tragedies that we've ever had in this country. And no matter if you explicitly told somebody, Hey, go, go mess with these people because they're lying. Like that's how, you know, that's how January 6th happened. Right. And, like you don't have to explicitly tell somebody to do something if they understand you to mean it, <laughs> they're yeah. going to do it. And they yeah, can just if everything else you. you've said up until that point has put the ideas in their head that you know we're we're going to have a revolution, we're going to change the world today. It doesn't take a lot to push that over the edge. Does that mean go uh, <laughs> go right. attack everything at the Capitol building? I think it does. Well, let's go. Yeah. Like the, yeah. Did we just find become out. best friends? And do we want to go out in the garage and do karate? right conversation right <laughs> and yep let's go yep. do it yeah but not a in, in this film he really uncovers the fact that there's something going on at the church okay mm-hmm. there's a church across the way from the encampment and he he just doesn't know what you know the community leader he's acting fishy so not a heads to the church he finds the church choir is no church choir at all miles no sir uh, no sir it's a recording of a choir that's supposed to be masking the volume of the secret conversations and this is kind of like a red herring 
Mm-hmm. I don't know if it fully classifies as a red herring, but it makes you think that there's something up with the, the, the camp leader, I guess spokesman. He yeah. isn't really leading anybody. But it makes you think he's the bad guy and he's behind some of this stuff. But whatever Nada finds, he, it only raises more questions, but you know provides no answers. But what happens next is something we've seen numerous times uh, before the film, and numerous times after the film. Uh, police raid the encampment, uh, destroying all the possessions, belongings of the community. Um, you know, those who were in the church, uh, they're catching the police beat down. Yeah. When I watch this scene, I can't help but think about um, maybe a little bit before your time, but the L.A. riots. Sure. And uh, the disaster at uh, Mount Carmel in Waco, Texas, mm-hmm. with, uh, David, David Koresh, totally oh, yeah. unav- unavoidable stuff. And then, sadly, more recently, the, the George Floyd protests that were peaceful yeah. until the government got involved. Right. So mm-hmm. and I, I know we're talking about a silly horror flick and I don't want this to be a heavy conversation. Sure. But those things have to come into mind when you see this. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That was my first thought when when they started coming through the bulldozers is uh this feels like something that could happen tomorrow tonight you know just, yeah it feels too real i mean the, the bulldozers really did it because mm-hmm. like we're not just here to to see what we can get done not we're not just here to see what we can destroy like we're here no. to destroy it all yeah decimation you're, you had you had very little you're gonna have even less when we're done yeah with you. yep. and all it, all it took was you poking your nose around where you didn't belong Mm-hmm. And I feel like that that translates to to real life, yep. you know. You know, it, a lot of movie posters for the film, uh, they featured this long blurb that read, "You see them on the street, you watch them on TV, you might even vote for one this fall. You think they're people like you? You're wrong, dead wrong." Long blurb so relevant is it not oh it could again it could be something that you saw tonight on tv about the election next week you know it's we've seen crazier yeah. things yeah yeah since 2020 you know sure. and like i'm coming from a guy who's not a political person uh i do lean one way mm-hmm. as most people do i lean one way um but i'm not a political person yeah uh, but when I see this stuff coming from both sides, it's like, gosh, you guys don't know how jacked up all you are. Right. You're, you're and the division you think is caused by the other side 100% of the time. And that is irreparable, irreparable mm-hmm. to your environment, your, your communities, uh, yeah. your entire country. Right. Yeah. But, uh, you know, when Nada goes back to the church, which has basically been gutted uh, at yep. this point. Uh, he finds this box that had been stashed. Now, I don't remember. Did he stash this box or did he just find it? You know, I was trying to think of that, too, because he went speci- he went directly to it back there. Right and to I'm, it. Just knew yeah. where to punch the wall out. Right. Yeah. So I don't I don't remember specifically if he put it there or not, but he found it pretty quick. I tell myself that when I do these reviews with people, I want to be point A to point B and give a genuine reaction. I did not want to rewind it and find out if I missed something. So we're just for the, the sake of argument, we're going to say he stashed it there his first time around. Makes but, sense. but what's in the box? Just a bunch of gas station sunglasses, right? Little yep. $5 sunglasses you're going to find on the rack at the gas station. Uh, but no, these are not just any old sunglasses, Miles. These are the 
iconic sunglasses. Mm-hmm. When Nada puts these glasses on, he sees almost what seems to be a different world. A world where billboards have hidden messages. Without the glasses, it might be a supermodel or a business. But with the glasses on, he sees simple messages like obey or stay asleep or watch TV. (laughs) Nice shirt. Thank you. And on the currency, on the currency, it says, this is your God. Right. I mean, do these messages have real world significance? I, you know, you already mentioned John Carpenter putting his thoughts into, you know, his opinions into these movies. And I think you're really seeing it come through in there. And, one that I think resonates with a lot of people, particularly working class people like the characters in this movie, you know, they, they have those, they, they feel like those messages are there, whether they're seeing them or not, you know, they're, they're being told obey, stay asleep. And money is absolutely, seems like it's the God. And when they try to poke around and figure out what's going on decimation, right? That's it. Yep. You know, last week um, I talked about a, no, not last week, this very week. I talked about a film from Wes Craven. I don't often talk about films from huge directors, like the iconic directors. Sure. It just happened to be that they were celebrating their release anniversaries, right? Yeah. We talked about uh, the people under the stairs mm. with a couple of good friends of mine. And I don't know if you've seen that one. It might be worth a revisit. Um, I'd have to revisit it. Yeah. It's been a long time. S- same message. Same message, except it's... Um, a battle between the haves and the have nots uh, classism, sure. racism, and things like that. But like two, two episodes in a row, basically where these are heavy subjects and you, we want to keep it lighthearted and we can definitely do that because this is a fun film oh, at yeah. face value at face value. It is the funnest film. Um, but something I love about the cinematography and they live. It's how Carpenter thought it through and said, How's the viewer going to know when Nada is seeing the real world and when he's seeing the real world? Right. right? And it was simple. When he's wearing the sunglasses, the film changes to a black and white filter. Mm -hmm. When the glasses are off, the film's in color. So simple. So simple. But doing it that way means we require no additional exposition. Almost like in uh, the Predator, when you know the Predator sees an infrared or not mm-hmm. infrared, um, like they the thermal vision, right, right. But like you know, as uh, as the viewer, there's immediate recognition when Nada's seeing in reality and when he's seeing the the hidden world. I guess right. Uh, you don't even have to think about it; it's immediate. But uh, I, I was I kind of went into it a little bit before, uh, but there's a lot of Roddy Piper in nada and like having so, so many Roddy Piper wrestling promos and interviews, like in the back of my mind, I almost feel like he was improvising a lot of these lines. Oh yeah. What's the one that he told the old lady in the, in the store? Uh, Oh, he called her. uh, I was trying to remember this one because it was so good. And so funny. Something about your face fell in something. Ah, uh, man. Looks like your face fell on the cheese dip back in 58 or something like that. <laughs> yeah, so ridiculous. I don't think oh, John man. Carpenter writes that line. I think that I've never heard a line be... like that in another Carpenter movie. 
I've never no, heard that come no, up. No, of course not. I mean, he, he wants to get deeply. Was that the boogeyman? Well, as a matter of fact, I believe it was. Right. What, what I'm going to do after we after we finish here, I'm going to send you like some of Roddy Piper's best promos. And I, I yeah. want you to look me in the face and tell me he wasn't the best on the mic. I think All he right. wrote a lot, of, a lot of this film. I believe but, it. You know, oh, yeah. But it, again, sounds like such a Roddy Piper line. I mean, he wasn't a big guy. But in the film, he looks jacked. That's next to a bunch of actors, next to other wrestlers. Mm-hmm. He's often the smallest guy in the ring, like I said. And he wasn't even that great a technical wrestler. Okay, sure. like his, his style in the ring was like a brawler. Okay. He, he made his money on the mic. Legendary trash talker. And I, I think if you were to poll wrestling fans and ask who the best talkers were in the history of pro wrestling, he's making the top 10, t- top 10 list on like the vast, vast majority and okay. like n- not just scripted, like he could go off the cuff with anybody. Nice. Um, he, he went on politically. Uh, what was the Bill Maher show? Politically. Incorrect? Oh, pol- yes, I think so. Yeah. So he went blow for blow with a guy who made a career out of being a soundbite guy. Oh, boy. <laughs> right. And <laughs> oh, as much as I. Oh, it is, man. It, it is. And he got like hot with it, you know, um, basically. Mars, this is during a time when maybe it felt like gotcha journalism. Yeah. And he wanted to bring four pro wrestlers onto the show. And two of them, well, th- actually three of them were uh, very outspoken. One of them stayed quiet because he was like getting pretty, you know, pretty upset mm. about the whole thing. Right. But um, at the end of the day, Piper stands up. He's like, look, man, you want to call it fake? Call it what you want. But he pulls his pants down. Oh, boy. He's wearing underwear. Um, <laughs> but he shows him like a scar. He's like, I got a plastic hip. I got a broken wrist. And Owen Hart just fell from the ceiling and died. So don't tell me it's fake. You can go tell Mrs. Hart that wrestling's fake and see what yeah. happens. Yeah. And then later on, Mars like, well, hey, I'm not pulling my pants down in front of other men. So, but go ahead. And Piper's like, yeah, well, how'd you get the job? <laughs> like, and there was no air in the conversation. That's what yeah. makes a good comeback is the air in the conversation not being there, right? Yeah, yeah, just quick. But, um, oh yeah, shooting from the hip and like he was just perfect with it. But uh, he basically made Bill Maher you know, move the goalposts. Um, but listen, we have to talk about this fight scene. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm I'm I'm, I'm going to hold thoughts. <laughs> I want you to tell me how you felt about this this fight scene. Uh, well, minutes one through, I mean, how long was it? Um, you know, it's it's funny because it starts out and it's like your classic '80s fight scene where you're like, nah, you know, I don't buy this, and then it just keeps going and going. And you know, at first, I kind of thought this is a little ridiculous, but it also felt more like what a real street fight would actually turn out as when you don't have you know, somebody that like a, like a John wick type that just ends it real quick. You got two guys just brawling it out in the street and uh, you don't really know what their, their goal is in the end. Like, are they trying to kill each other, knock each other out? How does this end? And for a long time, it just, it just doesn't, it just keeps going. And I love every second of it, you know, cause it's, it goes from a fight scene to just, almost like a comedy, but you're still waiting for the outcome. You know what I mean? You know, this has to be the greatest fight scene like my eyes have ever seen. 
miles. Yeah. I don't say this lightly. Okay. I mean, <laughs> like it, it, the greatest fight scene ever happened and they live. And what makes it great is how, just when you think it's over, <laughs> they start right back up again. Uh-huh. Yeah, like, they're panting finishing. and laying there. Yeah, just <laughs> and they get right back after you. Like yeah. finishing blow basically becomes transitional strike. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. One man tries to walk away. He gets tackled from behind. Gets thrown into a dumpster. And again, I've got to give credit to Roddy Piper on this. They have a choreographed scene between he and Keith David here, and they basically put this thing together without much scripting at all. Wow. Like this was between them. They wanted it to look like a legit fight. Mm-hmm. And there were wrestling moves performed, multiple traumas to the groin of both men. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and like all because Keith David wouldn't put on the glasses. Uh huh. This is the greatest fight scene ever, man. And yeah. if even if all you do, guys, is Google the fight scene, go, go to YouTube, put They Live Fight Scene. And I think I saw it as his longest fight scene ever. There was a video on YouTube titled that, and it was the fight scene from they live. God, I don't I know if that's it. factually true, but it, it feels like it could be. Well, listen, the, the number of times that you think it's over and they start right back up is mm-hmm. astounding. Uh, you think that, okay, they're about to shake hands, but no, like he like reaches out, to shake his hand, twists his arm, knees him in the face. And he thinks he's done it now. It, it's the best thing ever, man. But Nada finally gets the glasses on Frank, and now he has an ally where before he had none. Uh, but there's something to be said about the fight scene past the hilarity of the stops and starts and the wrestling moves and the traumas to the groin. It was basically brother against brother, and it was incited by those powers that be, those same powers who are seeking out dominion, Two guys who are friends are fighting each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's probably more telling that it's a black guy against a white guy. So just like today, one might think that they're keeping up a racial war when there's really a divide between the haves and have nots. Yeah. What say you? I agree. Yeah, I got that same thing where you had this uh, sort of manipulation. You know, it wasn't direct. There was no actual hands moving them there was no one telling them to do this but it didn't matter they were still going at it and it was all over this this power that one of them didn't believe in and the other one did it's almost like a chess game yeah where yeah yeah, you can can move the piece if if you're the power that that is Mm -hmm. um you can move the piece but you you infer that the fight is happening between the two chess pieces yeah that's a great example yeah, they're putting the pieces in place and the fighting gets done because they think it's the way. Yeah. And I've seen multiple people. Um, I, I can't really point at anybody as like credentialed or anything like that, but they say that, you know, they've got us out here fighting a race war mm-hmm. while they're winning a class war. Yeah. And it's it's sad to see. And like partially, I, I think there's some truth to that. Yeah, and I agree. It's terrible. It's terrible. But not and Frank finally get some support and team up with the folks from the community. So they weren't bad guys after all, right? They were just, right. they were hip to it before Nada was hip to it. And, it, but it's basically become martial law out on the streets. It's, this is probably an allegory. There may be some who believe that just when we're united, the man's going to find a way to divide us. And that happens when the, the police force you know breaches and clears them out, basically kills everybody from the, from the community. Right. Yep. Yep. And 
And furthermore, uh, they've dubbed this group of rebels uh, an underground terrorist network. So it's kind of funny how that happens, right? Uh-huh. Because a lot of times somebody starts to make some headway and they get labeled an enemy of the state. Uh, yep. You can almost say that that happened with, uh, and uh, again, I do not want to get political, but I mean, just think about Ed Snowden mm-hmm. having to seek asylum in one of the, the, the worst, m- most strictest you know countries in the world. And yeah. like all because he, you know, he was a whistleblower on some atrocities. Yeah. And he, he should be, you know, a lot of a hero and yeah. he's having to live in hiding. Right. Well, real, real right. recently, there's a group I'm aware of that uh, all they do is teach preparedness and they got put on an FBI terrorist watch list. And they, the, the guy who runs it is a vet. I mean, he's a, I want to say army special forces and by all accounts, a great dude, but you know, they've decided they're a, a terrorist group. Art imitates life, does it not? Mm-hmm. Well, this film concludes with Nada having found the source of the signal. Uh, but he's stopped momentarily by, I think her name is Holly. Yeah, yeah. Um, his human female counterpart. They had a, a meeting earlier in the film. Don't want to go too much into it, because we do want you to watch this film if you haven't already. But um, yeah, th- this is where the spoilers are happening. So may as well stay. Listen, if you yeah. haven't seen this film since 1988, it's probably on you that is getting spoiled now. But <laughs> the, uh, the, she double crossed him once again, uh, because, you know, of course, there's always a subset of the population who are going to go along no matter how bad things are and yep. how much you lift the veil. They'll be blind to it and trust the people in charge. And while this film taken at face value is such a fun watch, it really is maybe the best film ever led by a pro wrestler, in my opinion. Yeah. And I do enjoy the rocks movies. I I enjoy what he does. They're they're mindless action flicks. You got to love that. Right. Yeah. Nobody's going to judge me for liking slasher flicks. Right. Those are mindless too. (laughs) Hell, but you know, this it's it's full of eighties cheesiness, um, but it is sad to know that this is a wildly embellished version of real world problems. Mm-hmm. Consumerism is a huge problem. Social media does want every second that you're awake. And yeah, imagine this movie with social media. I hadn't thought about that. Sign me up for a remake. Yeah, a reboot. Whatever you got to do, I'm I'm down with it. Um, but that top 1% of the population you were pointing at earlier, they want the bottom 99% to be in servitude. Yep. So, so Miles, tell me your final thoughts on this film. Final thoughts. You know, it was something that from the beginning, I felt like uh, was a deeper movie than what you got at face value. And while it's a little campy and a little corny, it still hit real hard. Those, those deeper meanings and messages uh, still extremely relevant today, uh, maybe even more so, you know, as we do have the internet now and we come, become more aware of the conspiracies and things like that, that are, are true and real, you know, it's, it's like 1984 where those things just keep coming true and you keep seeing the little things that creep in and go, man, is this fiction or not? <clears throat> I couldn't have said it any better than that. Miles could not have said it any better. Well, do you have any messages to leave with the listeners before we dip out of here? 
Yeah, I, you know, I just encourage anybody, if you're into horror fiction, check out my podcast, The Warning Woods, or, uh, you know, my books. I've got one called The Collins House and one called Mr. Secrets that just came out. They're both horror novels. If that's your thing, check it out. I'm on Instagram at The Warning Woods, and that's it. Of course, you know they're into it. That's why everybody's here. That's why we're doing what we're doing. Oh, yeah. This has been a very fun chat, Miles. I, I do appreciate your time coming on that you could fun. be doing a lot of things on a thursday night i mean you got you got the kid probably over there blowing snot bubbles waiting for you to get back so <laughs> i'm gonna <Spinning> <laughs> on the walls. yeah hey so yeah I'm, I'm gonna let you get back to that but i do want to thank you very much for your time 